Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. My guest today is Dr. Vagdevi Meunier. She is a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice in Austin, Texas, specializing in couples and family therapy, couples workshops, training and supervision, and organizational consultation. Vagdevi has over 28 years of experience as a therapist, consultant, and educator. She has been a certified Gottman Couples Therapist and Workshop Leader since 2006 and is now a Master Professional Trainer for the Gottman Institute, which, for those of you who don't know, is really impressive. <laughs> Dr. Munier has also is also a Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Texas in Austin, where she supervises doctoral students from the Clinical Psychology Program. You can find her online at drvagdevi.com. That's D-R-V-A-G-D-E-V-I.com. So, Vagdevi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Virginia. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think I will probably learn something new about relationships. (laughs) I'm hoping me too. I'm hoping we're going to have some callers. Okay, well, we'll see. Um, Let's start with just relationships in general. I know cross-cultural relationships are an area of expertise for you, but let's let's start with basics. Just to have a successful, long-lasting, intimate relationship, what do people need? Well, let me talk about the Gottman research first, because I think, in a way, that's our gold standard in the field of relationship research. He found that there were three dimensions to a successful relationship. One is friendship, the other is conflict management, and the third is shared meaning. And between the three dimensions, there are seven levels, and this is actually the basis of his book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, and he just published a revised edition of it recently. Um, and, and so there are seven components to a successful relationship. Um, part of it is the friendship component where how well do you know your partner? How much do you share of fondness and admiration? Um, how well do you sort of turn towards each other, build a bank account of responsiveness and intimacy with each other? In the conflict dimension, it's about how well do you manage conflict because he found that a lot of conflict in couples, whether they were in satisfied relationships or unsatisfying relationships, were perpetual, meaning that these were conflicts that they were going to run into again and again and again. And so how do you manage that? How do you stay in dialogue? How do you negotiate around these kinds of ongoing differences between the two of you is the hallmark of the conflict dimension. The shared meaning dimension is about how much do you create a sense of family with each other? How much symbolism, meaning, 
do you build into the relationship? In his model, trust and commitment are the walls of the house. In fact, his model is called the sound relationship house. And it's almost a, a wonderful metaphor because when you think of a house, the friendship is the foundation. Conflict management is like the living room area where daily life is negotiated. Shared meaning is like the attic where you keep all your memories and all the important values that you have are stored in photo albums and wedding dresses and things like that up there. And then the walls, trust and commitment, keep the world out. They create a kind of family bubble, right, between the couple. So I would say that's our gold standard, that's our roadmap for what a healthy relationship should look like. Well, we certainly know that John and Julie Gottman at their research institute have set, they've created the gold standard for high quality research about relationships. That's right. right. And they're wonderful trainers, very wonderful trainers, I'm I'm, you know, I'm delighted to be talking with you, having, as given that you were trained by them <laughs> or at Thank their institute. Thank you very much. Yeah, I really appreciate you inviting me on the show.com. So if, um, if my husband and I were, you know, coming to you uh, for maybe a couple's workshop to learn how to put our relationship on a very strong foundation. What kinds of things does the Institute teach? We do have a two-day couples workshop. And the first day, we teach people how to build friendship, how to build uh, generosity and admiration and appreciation, how to build safety with each other, and how to build trust. Because without that, you really can't, you don't have a container in which you can manage the stresses of, you know, life, right? And so Mm -hmm. the first day is building this container. The second day, we take the couples through working very specifically on very practical skills and tools for how to negotiate difficult subjects. And, And the concept is we all have to do this. We all have to figure out how to negotiate difficult subjects. You know, in my own marriage, I knew that we were on to a better path in our marriage. My husband was explaining to some of his friends that, you know, he and I are just going to fight for the rest of our lives about how to load the dishwasher because, of course, he thinks he knows how to do it the right way, and I think I know how to do it the right way. And he was explaining to them, you know, it's okay if you guys fight about laundry or dishwasher. Just settle into it. And, and, you know, here are some skills. You have to learn how to stay in dialogue. So that's kind of the um, essence of what we do in the couples workshop. And I think that's the essence of what we try to teach people is how to have this attitude of acceptance and generosity and compassion for each other. Mm-hmm. I would think that for a lot of people, that's a bit difficult to learn. Which part? The, uh, acceptance. Which I, think? Com- I think acceptance, compassion, generosity, um, all of it. A lot of people um, tend to think that the way that people did things in their family where they grew up is the right way to do things. And if you come right. from a different family and you do it differently, it just doesn't feel right. 
and it's hard to open yourself up to the possibility that that's really fine also. Exactly. So one of the things we teach in the conflict management section is this idea that differences don't make for difficulties, right? Differences actually make for great richness in the relationship. So I hang white ornaments on the Christmas tree for Christmas because that's what my family did. You hang colored lights. We have an opportunity here to create something new and unique. The problem comes when I look at your way of decorating the Christmas tree and say, that's ridiculous. Who puts colored lights on a Christmas tree, right? And then you look at my way of decorating the Christmas tree and say, oh, that's so boring. You're such a boring decorator. When we begin to judge and vilify each other, and I think you're right. I think that people have difficulty accepting differences, and particularly when you're attracted to somebody who's different from you is not just on, hey, you grew up in a different family and I grew up in a different family, but even more than that, you grew up in a different religion or you grew up in a different culture altogether, then all of a sudden we're not just arguing about white lights and colored lights on the Christmas tree. We're talking about do we have a tree at all? Do we agree to honor my religion or my culture more than yours? And the difficulty there is not the difference, but how we perceive our partner's difference as being less than or problematic rather than as a source of richness for the two of us to grow together. I see. Is there anything, any little tidbit of what you teach in a weekend couples workshop that is possible to illustrate, to teach in 10 minutes on a radio show? Uh, Sure. Do you want to... Let's go for that. (laughs) Okay. Do you want to give me a scenario that you want me to help you sort of... Apply a tool, or do you want me to suggest one? If you have one in mind, I would be happy to go with that. Okay. So um, let's take uh, this couple that I saw this week, right? Um, She grew up in a family where um, she was, she's American, and she grew up in a family where people um, didn't talk to each other much. And there was this sense of there were people who had special relationships with each other, so not everybody was included. And he grew up in a family where people were very lighthearted and, um, you know, didn't really take things too seriously. They They let things roll off their back a lot. Now, one of the conflicts they have that they bring to the couples workshop is that she wants to feel included in all the conversations she, he has with anybody. She wants to feel like he comes to her first and he tells her first. So they go to this party and he's talking about his job and all of a sudden he says, oh yeah, and they offered me this special project and they're talking about maybe promoting me and she starts to feel like, how come I'm hearing about this for the first time in front of all these people you excluded me from the specialness that our mm-hmm. relationship should have. So she didn't say anything at the party, but she waited 
they got home, and then she said to him, why didn't you tell me before? And he said to her, well, the reason I didn't tell you is because you always dismiss things that happen to me and my job as not all that important. So what he was doing really was blaming her and holding her responsible for something he didn't do, right? Uh So there's a couple of tools we use with that. One tool is what we call the aftermath of a regrettable incident. We find that couples want to have a collaborative discussion. But what they find themselves in is what we call an attack-defend kind of argument, right? She's attacking and saying, how come you didn't tell me? And he's defending and saying, well, that's because you're not somebody that I can talk to. Instead of that, they want to really be in a position where she can express her feelings and he can express his. They can't go from attack-defend to collaborative in one step. So this tool called the aftermath of a regrettable incident takes them through five steps. So the first step is each of them get to talk about what was that moment like at the party? When you heard me talk to, you know, my friends and talk about this promotion, what feelings came up for you? So she talks about her feelings. And then he talks about his feelings, but his feelings might be more about when you came home and then you, you know, kind of launched at me and and got angry at me. So he talks about his feelings. Then each of them talk about their subjective reality. In the subjective reality, what we want is for each partner to really hear what the other person's experience of this moment was. So she might say, you know my family, you know the kind of person I am. It's really important for me to feel like I'm, I'm special to you and I hear things before everybody else does. And so in that moment, what I really wanted was for you to have told me before we got to the party. And he needs to then validate that. He needs to show her that he can really walk in her shoes and understand why this was a problem for her. And then she listens to his subjective reality and validates. It doesn't have to be that she agrees with it. She looks for what is in his subjective reality that she can really see the logic of. The metaphor that I like to use is, you know, if you went to a movie theater and we gave two directors and two sets of actors the same movie script, would they come out with the same movie? They wouldn't. There would be differences, right? So spend a little bit of time in your partner's movie theater listening for and watching their movie of this event and see if you can find the hidden reasonableness in their perspective. So they both do that. The third step is they talk about, well, why did this become a fight? What button got pushed for me? And we all have these buttons. We all have what Gottman calls enduring vulnerabilities things that are sort of tender places in us that somebody could tap into that would make us react with a lot of emotion. So the third step is to talk about why was this problematic in terms of my long-standing, you know, hot buttons. Then the fourth step is they both look at why were we not able to negotiate this differently? What set us up? What contribution did we bring to this argument that made the train go off the rails, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is what we call the admitting phase. So they have to go through looking at what, did, what could I have done differently or what did I bring to the table? And then the last step is they each talk to the other person about what would you like me to do next time we have an argument like this? What would you like me to do that's different? 
what could I have said the moment that I realized you were upset by my comment? What could I have said to reassure you? Or when we came home and I was angry with you, how could I have expressed that to you in a way that you could have heard how hurt I was? So this five-step process allows them to repair from and recover from a regrettable incident or a fight. Not all couples have fights. Some people just have, you know, cold wars, right? So this process allows them to recover from whatever kind of fight that they are likely to have. I see. Yeah. I I like that you break it down into so many steps. So each piece is something that you can handle, something you can do or digest. Um, And then when you've gone through all the steps, you probably are at a different point in thinking about how you would avoid that kind of problem in the future, say, by telling your wife before you tell anyone else, (laughs) or (laughs) what you would do if you... Exactly. My hope is that that the couple is developing some sensitivity to what each other's hot buttons are Mm -hmm. and trying not to trip them. Right, mm-hmm. But there, we're also taking the attitude that you will have another argument. You will have another moment when you miss each other or you say something that hurts the other one's feelings. We don't want to take, we don't want to presume that you can never, you will never have another argument again. Mm-hmm. We want to say arguments are normal. Mm-hmm. It's not the argument that's the problem. It's how do we use differences and uh, places where we rub up against each other How do we use that as opportunities for building closeness and greater Mm -hmm. understanding with each other? Would the processing for this couple be likely to include thinking about what the wife might have done differently in the moment at the party when she starts to get upset because she's hearing something new and she's in a public setting and other people are hearing it too? Certainly, um, he might be able to say to her, you know, perhaps when she heard him talking about the promotion, she stomped off and didn't talk to him for half an hour, right, and kind of embarrassed him. So he might be able to request that the next time that happens, come and tap me on the shoulder and ask to go outside with me and express your feelings in the moment so that I can give you a hug and say, I'm so sorry, honey. So, yeah, he could certainly ask for that. What we do is we ask them to think about what would they like to see different Mm -hmm. the next time they run into a similar situation. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's a good illustration. We're going to take a break now, and I will be back talking with Bhagdevi Munier after a minute. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. 
To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radioshow at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. We're talking today about long-term relationships and in particular we're going to be talking about relationships that have the added complexity of an intercultural relationship or a, a marriage of people from two different marriages two different ethnic backgrounds you know not not the same kind of upground background and, and cultural heritage my guest is Dr. Vagdevi Munier and she is the founder and executive director of the Center for Relationships in Austin, Texas. That's a community counseling, training, and outreach agency with a research pro- program, which is pretty cool because so far we don't have an awful lot of research about cross-cultural relationships. Mm, Vagdevi. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to guess that what you got you started being interested in this is your own marriage, but I might be wrong, so tell me. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's a big piece of why I've been interested in intercultural relationships, because I'm in one. But I also have begun to see more and more intercultural relationships in my practice. Um, just before the show, I went online and looked up the census data and discovered something I didn't know, which is that between 2000 and 2010, the number of households with partners from different ethnicities or races has gone up by 30%. So we used to be somewhere around 7% overall, and now we're we're closer to 10% of the population of the United States. 
is uh, made up of couples in relationships where they come from very different backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities, races. That was surprising to me. Yeah, that's that's actually not too surprising to me because the United States is in one way like the United Nations. We seem to have people from everywhere in the world who have come to live in and enrich our country. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. and I, I do think we have really in the last decade uh, created much more mobility and much more intercultural communication and access, right, in workplaces, in schools, uh, in social settings. We have people from very different backgrounds interacting with each other and getting to know each other. So what is your background and what is your husband's background? So I was raised in India. I grew up in India. I did my undergraduate in India. I came to the United States in 1983 to do my master's degree. I went to a women's college in western Massachusetts, Mount Holyoke College, and my husband was in the Army he grew up in Western Massachusetts. He's a, a Caucasian American. And he came back from Korea after four years in the Army and was going to school at the University of Massachusetts. So and you're studying near each other. I see. Yeah. Did you date a long time before making this big leap into marriage? We did. Uh, I had dated other men from different cultures before that, so he wasn't my first intercultural relationship. But, um, you know, we were friends for about a year, and then we actually lived together for three years. And, of course, coming from a very conservative culture, I had to, you know, keep that secret from my parents for a while before they found out that I was in this relationship with this young man. We actually had two phone lines in the house, you know, in our apartment. And he wasn't allowed to answer one of the phones just in case one of my relatives called. Um, and so we lived together for three years. And I've, in looking at some of the literature, I've discovered that that's not unusual. Couples, particularly from different cultures or races, will often spend some time living together with each other because it does feel like a big challenge. And the challenge isn't so much with the two people in the relationship, it's that I better be sure, you know, before I told my family that I was with Tom, my husband, I really had to be absolutely sure because they were going to put doubt in my mind. And that's exactly what they did, right? The first thing they did was to call me up and say, it's not going to work. This is a terrible idea. Your children are going to be, you know, outcasts. They're not going to have any friends. Your marriage isn't going to work out. So there were plenty of people calling us and, and kind of giving us all the negative news and predicting negatively. So mm -hmm. we had to be pretty strong in our belief about our compatibility and about our commitment to really make it work uh, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have some experience of that in my own family. When I was a child, I had two different cousins who intended to marry someone. One was a person of a different religious background, and one was a person with a different racial background. And in both cases, the family overwhelmed them 
and the marriage either didn't happen or ended pretty quickly in a divorce. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. But times have changed. <clears throat> times changed, have changed. And I think um, young people today are much more confident of their ability to make a relationship work because they're not so reliant on either living in the home of the family or living in the same town. Um, so there, because of that increased mobility, because of that uh, ability to sort of go make your life somewhere and, and, you know, really just be with each other, I think um, young people are much more confident about doing this. Mm-hmm. Would you say that there are some ways that these interracial or interreligious or intercultural relationships might be even richer than relationships between two people who come from more or less the same background? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's, it's both challenging, but it's also really enriching. Um, simple things like introducing each other to different foods, um, introducing each other to different forms of entertainment. My husband had never watched a Bollywood movie before in his life, you know. <laughs> uh, the first time that he watched a Bollywood movie, he was blown away. It's a two-and-a-half-hour saga of great drama with every possible emotion in it and people wailing and crying, but also dancing and singing and running after each other, you know. <laughs> And so for him, that was really amazing. For me, you know, I grew up in a culture where people made a big deal out of everything. We were very, we lived big, we talked big. And so to meet his family, and what was ironic was he comes from a large family on his father's side, and I come from a large family on my father's side. So what we found was similarities that cut across cultures. When I visited his family and his father's side of the family with you know, the 11 brothers and sisters. I loved his aunts and uncles, but I also learned something about being really lighthearted and not taking things so seriously, Um, you know, making jokes and teasing each other, but not really, you know, being heartbroken or annoyed or frustrated by that. That was new for me. In my family, if somebody hurt somebody's feelings, you'd have a vendetta that their children would carry on for them, you know? So we've learned so much about um, how to really see the world differently. Okay, that's interesting. Um, Apart from the very negative expectations and prophecies that some relatives might make, are there other difficulties that people in an intercultural relationship ordinarily have to deal with? So the research shows that the theme that keeps coming up again and again and again for intercultural, interethnic relationships, and when I say intercultural, I really mean interreligious, uh, when people are from two different nationalities. You could have two people who have a Jewish background who grew up one in America and one in Israel, and they're going to have this difficulty. And that is in conflict management. When we look at couples who come from the same culture, we, we still talk about the two of you are coming from two different families, and you might have two different ways 
of looking at things, right? But often we're talking about that in terms of your family might have been stoic and your family might have been more expressive. But imagine if you take that difference and you have one be an Italian family and the other be a Nordic, um, you know, Scandinavian family. All of a sudden, stoicism or expressiveness gets stretched out. The difference between the two people is so much greater. And there's also a kind of ethnic pride that comes into it. So they can't just argue about their emotional styles. They're now arguing about, do you think I'm from a bad culture? Or do you think, you know, the way I do things is wrong? How dare you say that about Italians, right? So Mm -hmm. conflict management is a theme that shows up in the clinical literature and in all of the articles and books that I've read about intercultural couples. Now, I want to say that the media and the research tend to focus on all all the failures. They tend to focus on how it's difficult because I think there's a kind of cultural bias towards that, which is ironic. We have so many more people dating across cultures but we still carry this kind of bias about, oh, that'll be too hard. Your children will suffer. We don't tend to research or look at how are the successes, what are the ways in which couples who are happy in these relationships are really doing something that's wonderful and different and good for the country and good for our communities. So at the Center for Relationships, our research is focused on looking at what do these couples bring that is not just about the difficulties and the challenges. We already know that exists, and and people have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. How do intercultural couples handle differences in their expectations about raising children? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, the most important thing is to really understand that our values are relative. This was something that I had a couple in my office the other day talking about, raising children, right? She's Latina and he's Caucasian. In his family, the way he described it, children kind of raised themselves. And it was a source of pride. He remembers when he was seven years old, walking home from school, having a key to the house, coming in the house, getting himself a snack, and then turning on the TV, getting his homework done. His mom would come home at 5.30 to start dinner. But by then, he had already taken care of a bunch of things, and he remembers by the time he was 11, he was doing his own laundry. She's sitting there appalled at this. She says, your family was neglectful. And he didn't want to, you know, he didn't agree with that. Because in her family, a 7-year-old still needed a lot of comforting and a lot of caring. It wasn't about independence as much as care, as much as showing this child that we're here for you, um, you know, having somebody in the house that greets the child when he comes home from school, having food waiting. I remember growing up in India, coming home from school, and my mom would have a fresh snack cooked and on the table, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It was luxurious. It was wonderful. I felt like there was some kind of cocoon into which I was going to walk into. My husband didn't grow up with that experience, and I don't think that hurt him. So 
I think, you know, managing your expectations begins with not seeing your partner's experience as bad, but really understanding that it's relative. What we grow up with is what we think is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. And it's only when we're exposed to other countries, other cultures, other ways of doing things that we understand that there could be another way to do this. Mm-hmm. And we might, in fact, figure out a way to do a little bit of both. Yeah, it sounds as if it it's probably important for most couples to talk about how they plan to raise their children together. But it would be much more important for an intercultural couple to to talk with each other about their histories and expectations and work out together how they're going to raise children together coming from such different backgrounds. Absolutely. In the Gottman um, therapy model, we have a technique or tool we call love maps. And love maps is... What is the map you have in your mind of your partner, of your partner's likes and dislikes and uh, preferences and personality? I think for intercultural couples, love mapping is a much more critical tool. And you need to make sure that your love mapping really includes cultural information. In my clinical practice, I'll sometimes see couples who are from different ethnicities or different religions, and they've never shared with each other what that felt like, what that looked like, because they are both living in an American context. They're living in, you know, let's say Austin, and it's a very cosmopolitan city, and they're thinking, you know, we don't really have different lives here. But their differences in values, perspectives, can show up in very subtle ways. Um, one, one, another example I have of an Indian woman who's married to a Caucasian man. They went to the grocery store, and he has two children from a previous marriage, and one of the kids had a meltdown, and she felt completely at a loss on how to handle that because in her culture, they would have handled that very differently way ahead of time, right? Or if the child got emotional, they would have dropped the grocery shopping, and taken the child and gone back in the car and sat with the child in the car for an hour, that's not what he wanted to do. He just wanted to say, stop it. This is not a place. This is inappropriate for you to have a meltdown here. Wipe your tears. Pull yourself together. We're going to go get the grocery shopping done. So right in the middle of the grocery store, the two of them are having a tense moment. I mean the husband and wife, right? The little child is crying. (laughs) Yes. And they have to... What, what they hadn't done was they hadn't talked about that ahead of time in terms of the, you know, memories and, and experiences they had growing up and what it meant to them. So they mm-hmm. hadn't shared their histories. They also hadn't shared their values around those histories. That's mm-hmm. part of love mapping, really mm-hmm. taking the time to share what you might think of as Irrelevant details can end up being very important in understanding each other. In that particular example, they have two layers, at least two layers of difficulty. One is that this is an intercultural marriage. The second is that this is a step family. You've got children who already have a mother 
And now here's somebody else showing up in a mother role. <laughs> and so I, I would suggest that that family should look for the, sh- the interview I did with Dr. Patricia Peppernell because she has done amazing research about step families and what works so that you do all learn to get along with each other and value each other and feel like you belong in the same family. Absolutely. You're right. There's two different kinds of love maps they needed to do. One is about their values around blended families and the other is about their cultural differences. Right. And there are just... um, difficulties that step families face that are different from families that form and have children in the first in what is the first relationship for both partners. Right. We'll have another break now and we'll be back in a little while to talk some more about what makes relationships successful. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at colinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. 
Dr. Vadevi Meunier and I, Virginia Collin, have been talking about intercultural and interracial relationships and what helps them to succeed. During the break, we got started talking a little about how the couple, as a team, can handle um, negative input from other relatives. What would you like to say about that, Vagdevi? Thank you, Virginia. I think, again, in the literature that I read, one of the things that pops up over and over again is that having an intercultural relationship in and of itself can be challenging, but the biggest challenge or difficulty comes from other people's reactions to that relationship. And what they talked about was how uh, experiences of discrimination causes stress in each individual and within the relationship, and that stress can really have a very profound impact on the physical and mental health of both partners in the relationship. So when I work with couples who have this, I want to make sure that I'm really helping them learn how to become kind of a team, a solid unit that can support and validate each other. It's so important. Um, you know, there was a couple that uh, I was working with where she's African-American, he's Caucasian. They live in this apartment complex. She was getting out of her car, and I think um, somebody in her neighborhood had seen her with her partner. So she's getting out of her car, and this person comes up to her and says, what the heck is the matter with you? Why would you choose a partner who's white, aren't black men good enough for you, right? Now, that's stressful enough for her. She walks into the apartment and tells him this story, and he poo-poo's it and says, oh, you know, that person was probably having a bad day, and, you know, they've just got a chip on their shoulder, just ignore it, just, you know, don't worry about it. He was trying to reassure her, but that didn't work. Right? Because mm-hmm. what she was experiencing was a kind of invalidation from him. Mm-hmm. In the literature, we call this microaggressions. So there was a microaggression from this neighbor who said, what's the matter with you? But then her husband, partner, was also engaging in a microaggression by invalidating her experience. So one of the things we teach them is a tool called a stress-reducing conversation. In the stress-reducing conversation, each partner takes turns for let's say five minutes. So she got five minutes to just talk about what was this like? And the stress here is always an outside stress. In the stress-reducing conversation, we want them to really be allies for each other against the world, okay? So she's Mm -hmm. talking about this experience in terms of being an African-American woman and what her already sensitive nature thinks about their relationship, and then to have somebody that's not related to them, who just observed them coming and going from the apartment, walk up to her and have the boldness to say something to her so negative, right? So she's talking about that. His job doing that is to really validate and be her ally, to take her side, and even if he doesn't agree with everything she says, to try and find her emotional experience that he can join with, to try and understand, walk in her shoes and say, that must have felt really shocking. That must have come out of the blue for you. So he does that for five minutes, and then they switch 
and he gets five minutes to talk about what is it like for him when his partner comes home and says, I feel awful, because he took it very personally. He thought his partner, that she was saying, I feel awful because I'm with you. I feel awful that I chose you, right? And so he got to talk about mm. what's it like for him to hear that she is subject to discrimination out there and how helpless he feels to change the society in which we live and how much he really wants to just reassure her and protect her and, and you know, try to tell her not to take it so badly. And mm-hmm. then she got to validate and be his ally and really understand from a majority culture perspective how it would feel to him. Like, this is, that person is ignorant. Let's not give that person too much time and energy, right? So she mm-hmm. had to really understand that from his perspective. Mm-hmm. During the break, we also spoke a little bit about internalized racism and internalized sexism. And those are both very powerful forces that people often are unaware of. What, what would you like to say to people about that? Well, you know, it's the kind of invisible layer that is residing inside of us. It's like we've been walking around breathing the smog and now the smog is in our lungs, right? So I might be attracted to somebody from another culture because for really genuine reasons, I am very open to other cultures. I find the richness of interacting with somebody from a very different background really enriching for my life. I may not really... um, want to subscribe to the dogmatic beliefs of my own family. So I really might want to, you know, live a life that proclaims something different. So great, I get in this marriage, I'm married to this person from another culture, and then, bam, two weeks into it, he says something or does something, and I'm thinking in my mind, oh, typical so-and-so, typical Latino attitude, typical Indian thing to say, right? Uh That's what we mean by internalized racism. Uh We carry it. And we can be our own worst enemies because we can then begin to really see our partner as not um, wanting to, to understand our point of view. We might see, I know that, you know, my husband grew up in a family where he didn't learn certain values around class and around culture. So how do you behave um, in, in social settings? I was raised in a family where we had a lot of dinner parties and we had a lot of guests from different countries. And so I was, lear- I was taught a very strict set of rules around how do you behave in public, right? So early in our relationship, I would watch him and I would think, oh, he has no class. And I had to really begin to critique my own understanding of that as internalized racism, that I had a certain right way of being. And this wasn't somebody from the outside saying, oh, your husband doesn't know how to behave. It's me. I'm thinking that. So really becoming self-aware. And internalized sexism is the same way, right? I want to be taught... I want to be treated like I'm a equal partner. I want to make 
uh, money. I want to have access to my own money. Oh, but the light bulb's burned out in the bathroom, honey. Can you go get a ladder <laughs> and change the light bulb? <laughs> so we oh, do that. Yes. yes, those knights in shining armor really are wonderful when they turn up. <laughs> <laughs> we want the knight in shining armor, but we also want the snag, right? The sensitive new age guy. And <laughs> right. I think sometimes we... <laughs> We really create a dilemma for ourselves and our partners when we have these competing needs and wishes that we have in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been learning a little recently from African-American friends about invisible racism, institutionalized racism, uh, internalized, unconscious racism, really. And it it leaves me with the impression that almost everything is more difficult if you're African-American in America. And that would be relationships and, you know, a lot of other aspects of life. Um, Do you think that that's true, that an intercultural couple that includes an African-American in this country has an even harder time than and than other inter intercultural interracial couples. You know, I think it's possible. Uh, I would hesitate to make a generalization because I think there are couples who navigate that beautifully. But what you're talking about here is a a kind of additional layer that a couple where one person is black or African American has to deal with, and that is an experience of oppression, right? When I'm in an intercultural relationship or I date somebody from another religion, I go into it with the idea of, oh, this is exotic, this is different, this is going to enrich me. But sometimes that person comes with a little baggage. And the baggage they may come with is they didn't feel exotic in this culture. They felt less than. And particularly with the African-American culture, you can have people who felt like they were at the bottom of the totem pole. And so no matter who they're with, whether they're with a Latino or an Asian or Caucasian, people are going to make comments to them like, oh, you're moving up in the world, right? Mm. And people in, in the other partner's life might be saying to them, why are you looking down or why are you marrying down? That's because we have this idea of oppression and we have these experiences of oppression. So I think African-Americans in particular bring into their relationships a sense of, am I worthy? Am I going to be accepted? Um, You know, I had an African-American, I had an intercultural couple where one of them was African-American and she talked about how 25 years later, They've been married for 25 years. 25 years later, some of his relatives are still asking him, why did you do that? Why did you marry her? You made a big mistake. Your children are going to be in trouble for the rest of their lives. She said, when do I get to be welcomed into this family, you know, more than 50%? Yeah, it sounds like that might never happen in that family. Yeah, and she has to live with that. It's not something he did to her. 
it's not something that she can blame him for. But at the same time, he needs to understand this isn't just that he married somebody from another culture. He married somebody that his family is going to actively harbor bias and discrimination towards for a long, long time. And that adds a layer of additional stress on the relationship. We're getting a little bit close to the end of the show, so I want to take this opportunity to remind people that my guest, Dr. Vagdevi Munier, is um, a clinician in Austin with the Center for Relationships and with a private practice. Um, She has presented to professional audiences and lay audiences in the United States, Canada, and India. She incorporates mindfulness, neurobiology, and positive psychology into her presentations on relationships. And if you want to find her to learn more from her or to get in touch with her, you can do that at drvagdevi.com. That's D-R-V-A-G-D-E-V-I.com. What last one or two things would you like to say about relationships? I, you know, the one thing I would say is relationships that last, where the commitment and the trust is strong, are difficult. They're not difficult because something's wrong with either party. They're just difficult in and of themselves. I left India. I'd never traveled before. I came to this country. I got a master's degree and then a doctoral degree. None of that was as hard as staying married to the same man. For 25 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to really understand that when we get on this journey, it's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard for most of us to do. And mm-hmm. so to really take ourselves with great compassion and to, you know, seek help, to get, um, to see a therapist, to get a coach, to go to a couple's workshop or a group not because something's wrong with you, but because doing so is really going to help you navigate the normal stresses of life with mm-hmm. much greater skill and with greater smoothness and, and you know, with more connection between mm-hmm. the two partners. Would yeah. you agree, Dr. Collins? I would certainly second that. I'm kind of a fan of uh, couples workshops that are run by people who are well-trained and really can teach skills because relationships are so difficult. And, you know, having some rituals you can go through and some tools in the toolbox can really help a couple of people stay together, which is, it's harder than it used to be because divorce is an easy option now. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Yes. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.